welcome to Admire, where I have conversations with leaders in business, entertainment, sports, and education. My guest today easily fits into at least three of those categories. She has a PhD in archaeology and has worked on many excavations and sites throughout the Mediterranean and the Middle East. Her second career has been as a well-respected market researcher focusing on consumer demographics and food. All along the way, she has been a published writer. But what brings her to the show today is her delightful new children's book, Little Owl in the Big City, recently published by Polish Press. Marcia Mogolnowski, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Cool. Where to begin? Where to begin? If I had to guess, I would have imagined that your first children's book would have been something like Marcia and the Buried Treasure or Marcia and the Chocolate Factory. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's start at the beginning. You were born in in Canada to, I presume, Canadians. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how it led to your very cool career choices. Oh, thank you, Larry. Uh, Yes, I was born in Montreal, and I lived in Montreal for a lot of my young life. I lived in a crazy household. My father was a Renaissance man, and he was a filmmaker, a writer, and an artist. My mother was an artist, and we grew up in a household where everybody was always busy with mom and dad working on their company when they're artist renderings and all that sort of stuff, we were always working together. So that led me to sort of going my own path because we didn't grow up in a household where the normal path was taken. It wasn't the normal 50s, 60s household. Yeah, and how big a household was it? Oh, well, I lived in the first, one of those multi-generational households. I have a sister, a brother. Mm-hmm. I had two parents and I had a grandfather living with us and a very mangy cat who hated everybody. <laughs> so it was a multi-generational household in the city. We also, since my dad worked from home, we had any number of artists and um, other people coming through the house at all times. So you never really knew who was going to be there. Oh, and we had a housekeeper too who helped run the whole household because it was a wild place to grow up. Well, um, after a number of years in the city, my parents moved out to the country and took the show out to rural Ontario, where my mother built our dream house. That's cool. So was this one of those things where you were a great student and loved school, or you um, were so-so about school and had to run home to where the action was? I loved school, especially university. I loved going to McGill. Um, But I also loved artistic things. I was mostly a writer all the time growing up. My sister was the artist. My brother was the technician, and I was the writer. And the three of us supported our parents by um, working with them to make this all be a a company we were one big company living in a house so what's the path from that very interesting upbringing to archaeology and how pray tell do you go from archaeology to becoming an expert on snacking archaeology well i've always loved archaeology it was something my mom loved and she taught me about it and i had books on archaeology since i was a young kid and when i got to mcgill where i was trying to figure out what i was going to do in that phase of my life there was a introduction to archaeology course and that was it as soon as I took that course, I realized that was where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I stayed as an archaeologist until well, I got older and realized it wasn't the best career for a person who wanted to have children. And I really wanted to have children. So I rejiggered myself a little. Was I explained to my current clients, I was an expert as an archaeologist on human behavior in the past. I'm an expert on human behavior in the present. The difference is that all the people I used to study are dead, and I couldn't make up anything I wanted. But dealing with snacking in the modern world, I have to actually listen to what they're saying. And it's a fascinating world. If you've done data, you can do data. If you've done research, you can research anything. I always find it fascinating about the way that people can connect the dots in their lives. Uh, but that, that seems to be pretty straightforward. 
actually, we've actually known each other a long time. Uh, I met you more than 25 years ago. I was running the Mars Three Musketeers advertising account, and you were writing about confection, maybe. I know it had something to do with yep. the Mars Candy Company, but what I remember most yep. is your mastery of the category that I was trying to help my agency understand better. I just remember having really interesting conversations with you. And uh, after that connection was made, you know, I know that over the years we've found ways to work together. Uh, as advertising and marketing has changed, how has the marketing research business changed and adjusted? And what's the state of the industry now? That's an excellent question. When I first started doing market research, um, and I worked for American Demographics Magazine, and I was writing about um, different categories and who was shopping in which category, the information was really hard to get a hold of. I mean, this is, as you said, 25 years ago. Uh, now, everything you need, the internet covers everything. There are a bazillion surveys. There's so much information. The challenge now is too much information instead of too little information. Mm -hmm. And the way you have to adjust for it is you really have to um, pay very close attention to the sources and think before you write. I find that when I write a piece, I would love to say that chocolate's going to make me young, slim, and attractive because the survey said so, but there was a survey of one person who happened to be young, slim, and attractive to start with. So you have to sort of go back and look at the data and be very careful and a lot more thoughtful than I think we had to be in the past. We have a lot more information that we have to sort through. That, to me, is the big difference. You know, that's probably a show in and of itself because I think that what you said sort of encapsulates one of the big problems that we're having in the world right now, and that is no one has any attention span, but there's all this information and no one really knows how to parse the information. And so, you know, people are walking around, some of them really, really misinformed because of that. So in sort of the, the you know, the industry that you're in, uh, how do you sort of regulate that? I mean, what's what's going on? I mean, how do you regulate somebody doing a survey with six people and then publishing it all over the place and saying that that's, that's what people think? Right. Yeah, it's a challenge. When I started in my job at Mintel, which is the market research I'm still working for, and I've been working for Mintel since 2000, I did actually teach other analysts how to read surveys. Look at the base. Look at what they're asking. Look who they're asking. Think about what the data says. It's great to slap a number, 25%, 50%, but what does it mean? Mm -hmm. And that's how I spend a lot of time working with other analysts. So they would dig down and say, what is the real story behind the numbers? And that's something I learned in archaeology, too, because if you have three bones, you can make any kind of story you want about it. Right. You have to stop and think, what are the facts behind it? So, so research is also a fascination of mine. So, so with all the research that's out there and all the stuff that you're looking at every day, tell me one or two pieces of information that you just find fascinating that you don't think are widely known. Oh, God, you're putting me on the spot, Larry. <laughs> um, I guess one of the things I'm always fighting against is the, the massive assumption that, that I, I work in the chocolate industry. I have to be honest and say that's my major focus is the chocolate industry. And there is all this um, literature out there, all this data out there, all these numbers out there saying how good chocolate is for you. And I agree, chocolate is really good for you. Mm -hmm. But the data points to not understanding exactly the quantity, the quality, the 
all the things around chocolate. It's, you, you can't just survive, for example, on chocolate, much as I'd love to. Right. This is not a health food. It's a health food because it gives you emotional health. And that's me something we have to sort out is the emotional from the physical health. And a lot of that gets lost in the data. So we have to start thinking, what do those numbers mean? What does that advertisement mean when it says, oh, eat this chocolate, you'll feel great because it's so healthy. Mm-hmm. So I've been working a lot on parsing out the difference between emotional health, physical health, emo- and um, wellness, what it all means. Yeah, my biggest learning working for a company that manufactured chocolate was how manufactured chocolate is. You know, um, mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you think like, you know, a lot of foods, you know, you can sort of figure out where they come from, but it's the most unlikely thing in the world uh, what they use to actually make the chocolate from. It's not the leaf. It's not the nut. It's not the thing inside the nut. It's the thing inside the, the seed, you know, and then how much processing it takes to get to chocolate, takes, right? Uh, yeah, it takes a lot. And Yeah, that, that, that's, that takes, was the most amazing thing for me. Yeah, it takes a lot. And the thing I'm learning about chocolate is it's not just one chocolate and one cocoa tree. Every cocoa tree, depending on where it's grown, tastes different. I mean, there's so many different kinds of chocolate. It's not just one taste anymore. There's all the uh, different types from different areas and how they are produced and how they taste and how they're grown. It's, it's a fascinating place to be. Well, it is. And it's sort of changed. I mean, from the time that I first started working, you know, with, with the Mars company to now, I think that my, um, my palate has changed so much. And now I'm very, very, very much a, a dark chocolate you know, um, kind of guy that really, really, you know, sort of understands the difference between that and the very, very processed thing that's mostly sugar. Um, but, um, you know, again, we can talk about chocolate forever, but uh, I'm really interested in how you um, get from this focus on trends, attitudes, and behaviors to writing about a little owl found in a Christmas tree. And for those of you who don't know or remember, uh, that was one of the breakout stories of last year's holiday season. Uh, I'll quickly refresh your memory. The Rockefeller Christmas tree last year was a 75-foot Norway spruce from upstate New York. After it was put in place in midtown Manhattan, a small northern sawwet owl was found high up, nestled in the branches. The story of the, quote, rescue of the owl made the national news. What made this story stick in your head and made you want to write about it? And for those of you who don't know or remember uh, what was one of the breakout stories of last year's holiday season, I'll quickly refresh your memory. The Rockefeller Christmas tree last year was a 75-foot Norway spruce from upstate New York. After it was put in place in midtown Manhattan, a small northern sawwet owl was found high up, nestled in the branches. The story of the, quote, rescue of the owl made the national news. What made that story stick in your head and made you want to write about it? Um, I think the thing that really stuck in my head was the rescue. Everyone kept saying, this owl was found, this owl was found in the tree. And I was thinking about it, and I said, well, maybe the owl wasn't really lost in the first place. Maybe the owl purposely hid away in the tree. And I got to thinking about how much fun that could be as a story, that the owl wasn't found. My, my book starts off saying, they found me in the tree, found me, found me, but I was never lost. I wanted to be in the tree. So it was a purposeful owl who had stowed away in the tree, and that just appealed to me as a story. That's cool. So what, what's the overall message of the book, do you think? Yeah, when I wrote the book, when I finished the book, I thought about it. And the message to me is um, be strong and be independent. The owl was very independent, made a plan to get away from upstate New York to see New York City. Um, but remember to look back to, I mean, I won't give away too many trade secrets about the book, but the owl does eventually find its way home. Mm-hmm. But not forever. The owl, the owl ends up the story saying it's so nice to be home for now anyway. So to me, it's be strong, 
look forward, but look behind too, because your roots are also is so important. For children, many, and, and also some adults, uh, not all of us, um, uh, the holiday season is so magical. Um, and I know that as you get older, you even fight to to retain some of the magic that you you, you thought about, um, you know, as, as as a young person. And and this book to me um, is so beautifully illustrated, and it so brings about not only the idea of the holiday season for you know in the country, but also in the city. Um, so so, how did you get to to your illustrator and and, and talk a little bit about the way that the book looks? Oh. This book is, I think, to quote my mother, one of her favorite words was serendipity, darling. Mm-hmm. Um, this book was so serendipitous that it, it just fell into place. It was This book was meant to be. I wrote the story without thinking of an artist. I was just writing for the sake of writing. Mm-hmm. I shared it with my husband, who is my biggest fan and my biggest critic. He's fabulous. And he loved it. He shared it with his agent, who uh, my husband's a publisher author um his agent i did not want her representing me it's, it's not it's not it's too much to share an agent we share everything else at any rate she managed to take it and get it um, seen by a press what she also did was she introduced me to this artist jill alexander who i never would have found otherwise and i i'm so lucky because jill is a fantastic fantastic illustrator she's an art teacher in new jersey and a fantastic illustrator and she and i we read the book together. We talked through every page and what my vision was for each page. And she could translate my vision to absolutely fantastic, fantastic illustration. I think I fall into her illustrations. There's so much to see that while listening to the story, I'm hoping the children will also get lost in the pictures of New York City, the pictures of the country. She did an excellent job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm holding the book right now. And the book has what librarians call heft. It has a little heft to it. Um, it's a it's an oversized book, um, hardcover. Um, the uh, the illustrations just jump off the page. Um, it's it's very very easy to read. Um, you know I can see this book showing up so many places and, and you know in so many readings and in classrooms and, and all over the place. Um, and um, and I just think that you know um, one of the things that we need so much these days um, is that kind of, you know, just fanciful story as story and those kinds of things that help bring back just the, the thought of, um, uh, of uh, interactions and, uh, and community. Um, so you write this book, you get together, you do those things. How much of that were you thinking about when you wrote the book? When I wrote the story, I just fell in love with my story. I just loved my story. But meeting Jill and talking it through and seeing it come to life we were hoping this would become animated. We could see this taking over the world because the story is so wonderful and her pictures are so rich that um, I'm very happy. I'm very happy with the, with the size and the heft of the book, as you said, mm-hmm. because I can see my children, my children are not little children anymore, but I could see my children when they were little falling into this book and holding it and turning the pages themselves. It's sturdy enough that um, they'll be able to turn the pages themselves and point to things in the pictures. There's just so much going on. So it's not how I started. I didn't really have a vision when I started. I just had this, the vision of the story. And the vision has grown, thanks to Jill. It's grown into this wonderful thing. So the book comes out this week. Uh, it's uh, available everywhere. So online, you know, all the places that you usually go to get books. And if you happen to go someplace and you don't see it, just scream for it so that they have to get it. <laughs> um, it's published Thank by Polish Press. 
Um, so I understand this is just the beginning. You have another children's book in the can and more on the way. Yes. Um, I've unleashed a new monster in me. Uh, the, the second book, the second book is written and I'm, I'm holding on to it, looking what to do with it. It's called wait for the moon. And I won't tell the whole story. It's about a tugboat. So not an owl, a tugboat. But then I have ideas for other books that are based mostly on the craziness of nature and how animals are doing very interesting things. And we, we like to ascribe a reason for them to doing things, but like the owl, maybe they have a different reason than we thought they had. So I'm looking at a number of different animal stories where animals are reported to have done X when actually I think they were doing Y. Is this perhaps a new career? Do you actually know when the new one starts or does it just happen? Yeah, it's a new career, but it's not going to get rid of all my old careers. It's just another layer of me. I just feel like maybe I'm just a large onion with a lot of different <laughs> layers of careers because I just love to try different things. And when something works, I just keep going with it. Cool. Switching gears, uh, the world seems to be in a battle royale against the COVID-19 pandemic, against a growing focus on differences and ideologies, uh, fighting for the environment. And in my way of thinking, even for civility, that seems to have disappeared. As an archaeologist, as a researcher, as a mom, as a human being, what's your take on what's going on in the world and where are we headed? Yeah, that's um, that's that's a really heavy question. This has been a very, very strange time. But as an archaeologist, I can tell you this is not the first plague. Hmm. I mean, we've had plagues before. We've had, um, obviously, we had the... the, the um, Spanish flu that everyone was talking about in the 19, in 1912, but even going back in history, there have always been plagues, and um, people have managed to keep going because people just keep going. I think the right word that you said was civility. There seems to be a lack of civility, and I hope that we will find a way to bring it back. Uh, what I've written about in my market research hat, something that my company's adopted is my expression, not talking about the next normal talking about, no, I'm sorry, not talking about the new normal, because everyone says, oh, it's the new normal, this is happening. But this is a continuum. I keep talking about the next normal and the normal after that and how we're going to change. Um, but the thing to remember is we've had these plagues before and we've all um, rallied and gone forward. Uh, uh, Procopius, here, ancient history hat, sorry. Procopius said plagues don't come for one tribe or another. They don't smite a population because it's gone astray. Mm -hmm. They're neither divine punishment nor a sign of the rapture. What they are are things that happen for us to reset. And I think what's really important is that we have to um, keep going forward to the next normal, but also remember to look back and see what we've learned. Hmm. Now you talk about, you know, uh, the next normal and resetting. Uh, I have a, a really good uh, philosopher friend, uh, and he um, he says that progress is messy. And um, and mm -hmm. and uh, and I, I sort of like that because I like to think that there's progress in the world. And I like to think that, you know, out of all of this might come something that that's better and brighter. Uh, and I look at Gen Z and uh, they've got so much more in the way of information and stuff than, than we did that, that maybe that's true. What do you think about that notion that this is this is just us in the midst of, of progress failing forward? Well, that's a heck of a way to get progress. It's rather <laughs> let's put the brakes on and stuff. But maybe we did need whatever, a, a rethink. I, I don't know. I think that the universe moves in mysterious ways. And what we have to do is just keep going. 
keep going and see what we can fix. There were things wrong, obviously. There are still things wrong, but I'm just optimistic for the future that we will keep going and keep going forward. I, I have two kids. I want them to have as wonderful a life going forward as I have. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your candid response and for coming on the podcast. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I guess my final thoughts are be strong, mm-hmm. be independent, look forward, look ahead, and listen to the owl because nature has a lot to tell us and we have to remember that it's out there. Marcia, thank you. Thank you very much, Larry. It's been a pleasure. My guest has been Marcia Mogolonsky. Her new book is called Little Owl in the Big City. Please go out and buy it, read it, gift it, talk about it. This is Larry Woodard, and you've been listening to Admire. Admire.